Hello, Hoopaholics, and welcome to the latest episode of the Boxing One Podcast. I'm Coach Spins. Thrilled to be joined today by a friend from NBA Draft Twitter, Stone Hansen, who is doing a bunch of great work, videos published all the time online, breaking some stuff down, working with upside swings. Stone, as everyone wants to know, how you doing? Uh, doing great, especially now that I'm on this podcast, so... Well, thank you for joining us here. I think this is going to be a treat for all of our, our fans and listeners out there. We're going to talk about some of the rookies and just the first week of NBA action that they've undergone, you know, our observations, hitting on a lot of the high points for them. We're, we're all about positivity here. So making sure that we talk about the guys that are performing to their best. And then we're going to hit on a couple second year players that are either make or break situations that have impressed us out of the gate or that we're anticipating are going to take a huge leap this season. But before we get into them, Stone, I have one question that we ask all of our guests as soon as they come on the Box and One podcast. You're up three with five seconds to go and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What, what do you instruct your team to do? Uh, I absolutely foul. Um, I think that. If they have, it's pretty simplistic and maybe it's overly simplistic to me, but it's, if uh, you have the opportunity to have the ball with the last seconds on the clock, uh, you do whatever you can to secure that opportunity. So I think fouling is the best way to go. Fair enough. Well, I think you and I are in agreement on that, but I always am curious to see what, uh, what some of our guests say. So, all right, turn to the page. You and I are both draft guys. We love looking at youngsters in the next up and coming generation. We're, both itching for college basketball and, and the G League with the Ignite season to get underway. But we've had this as an opportunity over the last week and, and even extending further back into the preseason to see some of these rookies in that highly touted 2021 NBA draft class really start their careers off on the right foot. But I think there's one guy who might be a little bit farther ahead from everybody else right now. So Stone, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Who's been the most impressive rookie in your opinion thus far? Uh, for me, it's been pretty clearly Evan Mobley. Um, may, and I think maybe my answer would differ had Cade been playing this first week. Um, but so far, Evan Mobley has pretty much been the uh, idealized version of what everybody had hoped he would be. Um, he's been about as good as you had hoped he would be as a rookie. Um, <clears throat> especially in sort of a weird offense with uh, three seven-footers starting. Um, he's really been sort of the cog to connect it all. Uh, you see him sort of doing a lot of high-low action passes, um, even down to like lobs to Lowry as a cutter, um, things that a whole lot of rookies aren't necessarily doing, especially like seven-foot rookies. Um, and I think that's something that has really set Mobley apart, both as a prospect and a rookie. Uh, it's just the processing speed that he has in which he sees the game. Um, he's very, very quick. Um, I would say he's like in a very high percentile of the league already in terms of how quickly he sees the game. Um, whether it's Garland and Sexton out on the perimeter uh, or just um, interior passes to Jared Allen. Uh, lobs to cutters like Okoro he's a really great cutter and, and Markinen um, he's just sort of the cog that connects it all together with his passing um, and also the processing speed on the defensive end is what makes him so great um, seeing rotations very quickly um, both when to help uh, and if he over helps uh, the recovery speed he has to get back to his own man um, a lot of things like that I think is what has sort of made him stand out amongst uh, all the other rookies so far. Yeah, so I want, to, I want to take a little bit into each of those areas, right, both offense and defense. And offensively, Cleveland plays some wacky lineups, and they almost have to in order to put floor spacing out there. They just paid Jarrett Allen a lot of money, and Evan Mobley just physically with his, his slender frame and how he's not quite ready for a ton of minutes at the five is pretty much a full-time four. And that was an area that long-term I wasn't really sure how I felt about that. I thought you could maximize his potential the most – by putting him at the five, surrounding him with shooters and pairing him with some other really, really dynamic scoring guard in the, the spread pick and roll. Now, right now at the earlier stage of his career, the most successful lineups for Cleveland are ones to me where he and Garland can be playing in the pick and roll. Two shooters are standing in either corners or, or deep on the wings. And Jared Allen is in the dunker spot, ready to catch those lobs. And 
Mobley has already done such an impressive job of, like you said, that high processing speed. Hit him on the short roll, he's going to make the right decision with it nine times out of 10. And I think the most underrated part of his game isn't necessarily the passing, which we all recognize how, how rare that is for a, a big man who's a rookie, but the fact that he can put the ball on the floor with one bounce and make a lot of good plays happen. He's always under control. He seems to, to really be able to shift his hips and kind of move laterally, where if he's bouncing to his right, he comes back over to his left and is able to lay it in. I, I'm really impressed with the amount of one bounce dunks that he really gets. A lot of times, if you're a bigger guy, they're all gift wrapped, catch and finish. He gets there a lot out of one bounce. And I think that speaks to his, his offensive arsenal. Defensively, Wizkid. And he's, he's making up for a ton of mistakes from those perimeter guys beforehand. The, the long-term fears that I had in Cleveland about Sexton and Garland playing together are actually somewhat exacerbated when you have two seven-footers behind them. Because there's just so much length that those guys funnel the ball towards that whether it's Mobley or Allen, one of those two is always going to be standing there near and able to protect the rim. And, and Mobley is so good at that at such a young age that, uh, that this, this Cleveland team is, is intriguing me in a lot of different ways. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think um, I know some people are a little skeptical of that Jared Allen extension when he signed it uh, because they also drafted Evan Mobley, but um, my rebuttal to that and, and still is, is that, not very many teams can boast two seven-footers on the court at the same time, two elite rim protectors, while not being clunky in terms of floor spacing. Um, I think that's a very, very rare component that the NBA teams have, and, and Cleveland is one of those teams. Um, it's not very often that you have, like, two of the best shot blockers, I would say, in the league, uh, while not sacrificing your offense. It may take a little more creativity to build around, but I don't think it's uh, by any means impossible. So um, I think Evan Mobley being able to provide sort of that cog that makes that happen uh, has will lead to a lot of success for Cleveland uh, with those two in the front court. Um, and then offensively speaking, like you said, he's uh, he's been really great in terms of passing and all of that. So uh, I would say Cleveland is in a much better place after drafting Evan Mobley. For sure. And, and look, he's, uh, one of four from three through the first five games, like the, the floor spacing and, and wanting to make sure that that's something that's consistent with him is going to be really important to me, especially if he's going to be a long-term option at the four. Totally understand that short-term, he's not strong enough. He's not ready to anchor the defense in that way. We have Jarrett Allen, so let's make this work. But if long-term, he's going to be that option at the four, I think he needs to be a little bit better or at least more of a consistent threat from three. I don't know if, if that's something that you've noticed or, or really watched for with a guy like him. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been watching Mobley probably the longest hit of anybody in this class uh, that was drafted. Um, and floor spacing is something that has never really been too much of an issue for me or concern like long-term. Um, I think most people understood this season that it would be a little clunkier um, because, you know, he just has to get used to it in the uh, USC it was a very clunky fit. Uh, there's not a whole lot of shooting there. Um, but I think he'll be, as time goes on, he'll be a, a completely fine shooter. All the indicators are there mechanically. He looks fine. Um, so there's there's not a whole lot of concern for me. The one thing I was sort of concerned about coming in uh, along with you was if you take him away from the five, um, I thought his best position would be at the five and a large part of that because he's such a great defender and a great shot blocker. And what makes him such a great shot blocker is the, the tracking. Um, and if you take him away from the rim, you're taking away his greatest asset as a player. Uh, that said, because you have Jared Allen there, you don't necessarily need that asset to be, um, I guess, as valuable to your team when you have somebody else that already does it at such an elite level. So when you take him away as an elite shot blocker, you still have another elite shot blocker there. Uh, and you can let uh, Evan Mobley use his great ground coverage and length to defend a bit on the perimeter, and you're not sacrificing really anything on that end. Yeah, his de defensive versatility is what's going to allow him to, to be effective on that end of the floor, no matter what position you peg him at or who his teammates are going to be, right? He can play with a guy like Jared Allen. He can play with a Lowry Markinen 
as his front court partner and cover up some of those mistakes. Like he's going to be just fine on that end of the floor. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why he was a very safe pick third overall is that, you know, at the very least, you're going to get a ton out of him defensively. My questions on Mobley always revolved a little bit more about the offensive end than the defensive knew he was going to be great, knew he was going to be versatile. How much does he give you consistently on offense based on the roles that you need to put him in? But I think the one area that I at least overlooked a little bit was just how impactful he's going to be just with his, his motor, right? He's been great on the offensive glass thus far, and he's been able to draw contact. He's shooting about four free throws a game. I know it's early and it's a small sample size, but if his motor is strong, if he's not afraid of attacking and going through contact, even with that slender frame, that bodes really, really well for him long-term to be not just a catch and finish guy, but a face up and driving option. So, you know, yeah. pivoting from, from Mobley in one stance there, he went third overall. You mentioned Cade Cunningham. We haven't been able to see yet due to injury, still rehabbing back. Hopefully he's going to be in the lineup within the next couple of weeks for the Detroit Pistons. Jalen green is sandwiched in the middle of them. He went second overall, a very popular pick for rookie of the year because we knew the, the minutes are going to be there. We knew the scoring opportunity in Houston is going to be there with the ball in his hand frequently. Mobley shot 20 free throws through his first five games. Jalen Green, four games in, has yet to shoot a free throw. But he has been, in pretty much every other facet, as good as advertised. Where are you at on the, the first week of action that we've seen from Jalen? Um, to be honest with you, I haven't seen as much Jalen as I have seen of Evan. So I, my, my thoughts on him in a weekend are probably not as definitive. Um, that said, I think Jalen Green has pretty much been what most have expected from him early on. Um, I think for most guys that are going to be scoring at the volume and taking the amount of shots at the volume that he does, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve early on. And we saw that the first couple of games, there was... Uh, you know, just poor efficiency. And I think that's to be expected with guys like him and in their archetype, guys who shoot that often, there's going to be uh, sort of a learning curve in terms of what shots can I take that are going to be efficient, what shots are NBA defense is going to allow me uh, to be comfortable taking. So, um, but we saw, I think it was in the third game uh, where he erupted for like 30 points. Uh, we saw him start to get a bit more comfortable in the Rockets offense and understand sort of what shots are best for him and what shots he doesn't have to necessarily force up and can get within the flow of the offense. So I think he was feeling a lot more comfortable. I think he shot like eight threes or, or made like eight threes or yeah. something like that. Eight, eight of 10 from three. He killed my yeah. Celtics, killed them. 30 <laughs> points, three assists, yeah. eight of 10 from three, 11 of 18 from the field. He was fantastic in that game. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of that, like I said, is just sort of learning um, how to be comfortable within the offense. Uh, guys that usually shoot the amount that he does are going to take a while to sort of figure out a balance between what shots can I make for myself and what shots are going to be coming within the flow of the offense and when those opportune times to take over are best. So I feel like Jalen really sort of started to get the grasp during that game um, of that sort of dichotomy and he's now uh I, from here on out i would expect for him to be probably like uh one or two in terms of the leading scores out of this class yeah so with jalen green and this has been something that i've debated the last couple draft classes anthony edwards jalen green fantastic scorers really a1 level athletes little bit different ways Edwards is a lot more of a tank that you don't want running through your chest and he's got that vertical pop to him Jalen is that freak who has the ability to jump out of the gym while also having lightning fast uh, change of speeds especially with the ball in his hands those two guys there's a little bit of a dichotomy there do you use your athleticism to really drive to the rim then force defenses to back off of you as a result of fearing your athleticism and therefore you have more of a more room to really get your jumper off or do you do it the other way do you become such a good jump shooter and take a lot of step backs and and really high level degree of difficulty jumpers that defenses start to creep out more to you now your athleticism is much more of a functional threat when you drive past and i think all of us would prefer it to be the former right we want you to be in that attack mindset 
so that as defenses are worried, then you settle for the jumper. Then the perimeter game comes. And a lot of those criticisms existed for Anthony Edwards in his first season in the NBA. He figured it out at the tail end of last year, and he's looked great. He's attacking the basket a ton this year in Minnesota. I think Jalen Green's going to be a lot in, in that same boat where, you know, it's a lot easier for him to settle for jumpers right now. But he's going to figure out when and how to pick his spots to attack the basket. And when he does, his jump shooting numbers are probably going to spike a little bit higher. So I, I don't worry that he's shooting below 40% from the field right now. He's going to get there. He's going to be just fine. There's just way too much talent. And we've seen this time and time again. Adjusting to the NBA is, is not easy. Even if you come from the G League Ignite and you were playing at a little bit higher level of competition last year. Yeah, and I think um, part of the reason I would say that he's quote unquote settling for, for farther out shots or jumpers uh, would be that his athleticism is great. And like you're saying, his, his change of uh, pace and direction is fantastic. Uh, but he's yet to sort of put that together and pair it with um, any sort of like high level uh, handling of the ball. So I feel like once that comes along, the attack will come along with that. Um, he'll be more comfortable in attacking and he'll probably get more open shots near the rim uh, and put more rim pressure on opposing defenses. Uh, but that handle hasn't necessarily been any sort of like um, asset thus far, but he's so young that I think that's something that will come in time. Uh, especially as he gets just more comfortable and adaptive to the NBA. Yep. Again, four games, small sample size, not yeah. ready to panic in any way. He's three of 10 at the rim, right? Not a great efficiency. Also, you would expect a little bit more in terms of frequency, especially if he's taken 30 jump shots. So for every one time he gets to the rim, he's taken about three jumpers. Um, another lottery name and guy that was taken in that top five was Scotty Barnes. And by my measure, Scotty popped the most out of this group during the preseason. He led the Toronto Raptors in assists. There's something about him and his personality that's just so dang likable and fun. And you can see that when the Raptors are playing. But now we're getting into the regular season and we get to see these teams for a little bit more of what they are. And the Raptors are pretty much who we thought they might be. A very good, long, switchable well-disciplined defensive unit that struggles to score in the half court. I don't know long-term how Scotty Barnes fits with the complete puzzle of Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, but regardless, Barnes is the guy to build around moving forward. Have you seen enough from him offensively over the last week or so, or, or even through the preseason and summer league to feel really comfortable that he's going to be that offensive piece for the Raptors? Um, I, I'll put a disclaimer that I generally don't take preseason and summer league too much into account. That said, Scotty Barnes was probably the most impressive player to me relative to my expectations in terms of what he could provide as a shooter. Um, I think shooting was the, the massive question for Scotty Barnes. Uh, and it looked, he just looked so much more confident and comfortable taking them both in preseason and summer league. And so far, four or five games in um and he's he's looked really comfortable so far so that's been a huge positive for me um he's also as we all knew a very great connective passer uh but he's also shown to me at least a lot more of an on-ball passer uh that i didn't necessarily see that high of a level of pre-draft um so i really liked what i've seen from him so far like you said uh, we haven't really seen what it'll be like with Siakam there. You also have Ananobi. Those are three very long guys, and defensively, I expect nothing less but great out of them. That's just going to be such a fun team to watch defensively, especially with, especially with uh, Van Vliet there. But offensively, they lack a real sort of um, table setter, I would say, and that's probably the biggest reason for their half-court struggles. Uh, you see the impact that Kyle Lowry made for them. And while I think Scotty Barnes is going to be like a fantastic player, I'm not necessarily sure that he's going to be that guy to sort of be the table setter for his teammates or anything like that, despite what he's shown um, as an improved on-ball playmaker. Um, so I would say he's definitely worth building around for the Raptors, uh, especially with Nick Nurse's creativity. 
but I feel like they they would need a um, an offensive table setter to really unlock Scotty's potential. Yeah, he he's, he strikes me a little bit in the same way as a guy like Siakam, right? Where he's really really good in transition. He's able to create his own shot and just bully guys and get to the rim. And he's a very good passer. I think that's an underrated part of Siakam's game. But if you're going to win, especially win in the postseason, you need shooting around those guys from multiple spots and multiple positions. And you probably need one other alpha in the backcourt. And, and from a team building perspective, you know, the Raptors probably have a lot to wrestle with this year in trying to figure out what path can they walk to acquire some of those guys that are going to bring out the best in Scotty Barnes and their organization in the future. You know, you mentioned the jump shot and the fluidity, five of 16 through five games, not a great number, but he's shooting them. And I think that that's a lot more than a lot of us might've predicted early on where he was very uh, hesitant at Florida state. And a lot of times, especially in the half court. And if he's going to be somebody that they're depending on, he looks more confident. It looks more fluid as a shot itself. Um, I wasn't overly worried about that with Barnes. I had him fourth on my board heading into the draft, was a huge, huge fan of his, and compared him to almost a, a baby version of Giannis, where just the physical tools that he has, the ability to impact the game defensively and in transition, it, you have to have a guy like that on your team, whether it's as a connector piece, like you mentioned, and we're going to revisit that term in a little bit. Um, or as, as a guy that's really the foundation of your team. Where were you at on Barnes heading into the draft? Uh, I believe on my big board, I had him 12th. Uh, year fourth seems a lot uh, closer to what it should have been, I think, early on. Um, I think my biggest concern for him was the shooting. I just didn't really buy it. That a lot of the, um, the indicators in terms of like free throw shooting and, and touch for me just weren't there, even though the mechanics didn't worry me too much. Uh, I think a lot of just the uh, ancillary percentages sort of did, uh, and they outweighed that for me, and that's why it was a bit lower on him. Um, but so far, he's he's definitely uh, put a lot of those concerns aside for me uh, early on. So I think I might have been a bit too low on him, uh, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. He also looks a little bit bigger. I'm not sure if you noticed that too. He looks like might have grown an inch or so since Florida State. So uh, paired with his mobility, I think that's also just um, a huge positive for him. I, I lost hours of sleep trying to debate Scotty Barnes versus Evan Mobley, who, who <laughs> I liked better. Like I had them neck and neck the entire process and, and couldn't really figure it out. And I think that what stands out about both of them thus far, as advertised on defense, really, really good with their processing speed, good enough athletes and rare enough with their combination of size and ball skills that they're going to figure it out. They're going to be impactful no matter what is it that you do. So if we're talking about overall takeaways for drafting guys and what to look for in the future, I think that if there's a, a you know, can't miss defensive guy, a really good, as you say, connector piece, or at the very least just has that high processing speed and, and ball handling ability. And they're, they're good enough to be able to get to the rim and score frequently. I think those are guys that you, you really want to value and, and a good lesson to learn moving forward. So you mentioned you had Barnes 12th. Um, one guy that I am currently kicking myself for having a little bit too low is Josh Giddy out of Oklahoma City right now. Uh, he's looked fantastic. He carved up the Lakers and probably one of the, the more surprise wins that we'll have all season. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if the Thunder win fewer than 10 games and the Lakers win a championship. And at some point, Years from now, we'll look back on basketball reference and, and look at the schedule and say, wait a second, that Thunder team beat the Lakers? But he was fantastic, as was Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Uh, what have you seen out of Giddy so far? And, and you know, where were you pre-draft in ways that you can really make me feel terrible for having Giddy outside of my top 15? Um, well, I'll start by saying as a Laker fan, my hopes for a championship are, are not feeling very, very high right now. Uh, I, I'm pretty sad by that performance. Um, that said, uh, all credit to Giddy. I, I had him 13th on my board, so you're really just hitting that zone of misses for me on my, on my uh, outside of the top 10 part. Um, he's, he's been fantastic, though. Uh, I think the big thing with Giddy for me that we saw since the NBA Global Academy um, where he was playing 
uh, really well on ball is he's always been just that tempo setter for a team. He's always been uh, the guy who everybody plays at Josh Giddy's pace. And that's sort of how the game is dictated. And I think I undervalued sort of what uh, that means to a team. If you're able to set the tempo and play how your team wants to play, I feel like that's a, a very important um valuable piece to to really any sort of franchise out there um he's obviously been a fantastic rebounder that's something that again has always been uh part of his game no matter what level he's played at um he's a fantastic passer as we've mentioned i think he's more he's got more on ball juice than i gave him credit for too early on uh, i think his speed his um or lack thereof maybe you could say is what sort of made me worried and put him outside of my top 10 because I wasn't sure how he'd be able to consistently create for himself. Uh, but so far, I mean, he's just been able to use his length and get around guys um, and his craftiness and creativity. So I think I, moving forward, should maybe pay more attention to if guys are doing something at a really high level um, at multiple basketball levels, whether it be the NBA Global Academy, the NBL, and now the NBA, um, maybe the level of basketball play isn't necessarily as big of a uh, factor as I make it out to be because he's been able to consistently produce no matter what level he's at. So um, that's, that's a takeaway, I would say, from Josh Giddy. You're, you're stealing a point right out of what I was about to hit on next. Like the, the two biggest takeaways for me early on with Giddy are one, I, I'm still struggling to have a, a great feel for the NBL and what success or, um, you know, high volume reps really mean in translation to the NBA. A lot of times we look at these guys in college who can play a high volume role and know right off the bat, eh, that's not going to fly when they get to the NBA. They're going to have to be used differently. He's more of a connector piece at the next level. He's going to have to become just a three and D type of guy. He's playing out of position for where he'll, whatever it ends up being. And the NBL is an area that I've just, I've kind of struggled with over the last year or two. I, I missed on LaMelo ball. I was a little low on him and thinking that he's not going to be catered to in that same situation as he was with the Illawarra Hawks, because he got every rep and every touch that he ever wanted running that offense. And I didn't think that he was going to be good enough talent wise to justify such a role in the NBA. So I paid way too much attention to the little things that he does. Is he a good off ball scorer? Is he a, a solid help defender in those ways? When it turns out it doesn't matter because he's just so damn good and so damn fun with the ball in his hands that he can translate that level to the NBA. And part of me wishes I had another year between evaluating LaMelo ball and seeing year two of where he's at now in Charlotte before Giddy would have come along. Cause I think I would have given Josh a lot more of the benefit of the doubt of, Hey, what we're seeing on film really can translate over to the NBA. I shouldn't be worried about the lack of shooting about the you know, subpar athleticism and change of speed. Like he's just a good enough all around basketball player and playmaker that he's going to find a way. The, yeah. the, sec yeah, it's the second quick thing for me is that I just, I really need to look in the mirror and change a little bit about how I evaluate lead guards or lead handlers who aren't great shooters. It's been very much an immediate kind of point off for me right off the bat. And Giddy, he, he's hitting some shots. It looks a little more fluid than we thought it does. It's still not great. But at the end of the day, guys who are big, guys who are just incredibly high IQ passers and, and gifted at making the right read every single time they get into the lane are, are worth investing in regardless of what the jump shot is. And I think that's where I missed on him a little bit. I missed on LaMelo and I'm, I was a little low on Tyrese Halliburton for the same reason. Yeah. Um, I think for me uh, with Giddy, the shot was, not really a concern because a lot of the mechanics and even the um, supporting numbers in terms of like touch and, and things like that, uh, free throws um, were a bit better to me than like Scotty Barnes, for example. So I was less concerned about Giddy's shot than Scotty. Um, but yeah, in terms of like 
ball handling. I think that's something that maybe I overcorrected myself with um, because I was uh, from from prior drafts um, maybe factoring it in too much. Uh, when Giddy is just he's a jumbo sized guard who can create for everybody. So uh, and set the tempo. That's um, probably an oversimplistic way of looking at it, but maybe not because that's exactly what he's doing and he's doing it really, really well. So um, I don't know, maybe I should just look into uh, drafting good basketball players because uh, Giddy was before then and he is now. So yeah. it's funny. I was talking to a, a baseball coach the other day who was telling me a little bit more about college recruitment from high school baseball players saying that most high school teams put their best player at shortstop requires athleticism. You need to have a strong arm, really good IQ and feel for the game, uh, cover a lot of ground, all those different areas. And college programs are now going to practices or, or looking at high school kids and saying, give me your shortstop because they know that we can teach him how to be a center fielder, a left fielder, you know, work on what it takes to move him over to third base. But the fact that he already has such a good feel and IQ and is the most trusted guy on his team, that's why his coach put him at short. Those are the guys that we want. I, I think that there's a little bit of that translation with, with the NBA draft, to be frank. Like, you just need good basketball players. And as we're seeing in, in so many different situations, what we project from the outside as clunky, there are ways to make that work. And, and it's not as ugly as we might think. Now, sorry for your Lakers. That's not necessarily been the case there right out of the gate. But uh, sometimes all you really need to make it work are those connector pieces, right? Guys who are the unsung heroes aren't the high, high usage guys, but still help you get winning basketball. And, and we've, we've said the word connector a lot I don't know if I have the perfect way to define what that is. I think it's more of a, I know it when I see it type of role, but one guy who stood out as the potential to be a connector who has been really good in that role so far through the first week is Franz Wagner heading over to Orlando, incredibly solid defense. He led them in minutes a couple, couple games ago, which is unheard of for a rookie who's rarely going to go out there and score 10 points in a game. Where were you on Franz? Where are you now? What have you seen in Orlando? Uh, so for me, pre-draft, Franz was one of those guys where I liked him a lot. It was just a matter of there's so many other guys I liked a little bit more than him, and I kept pushing him gradually a little bit down my board, uh, which was a mistake because I ended up with him at 18th on my board, um, and he's clearly played outplayed that to me. He's probably been the second best rookie so far. Um, that might be debatable with some people, but I've watched quite a bit of Orlando um, and he's led that team in minutes, as you said, um, obviously with Isaac and Okiki out. Um, so that may change once they come back, but he's been fantastic in his role so far. Uh, he's been a really great, like you said, connector piece where he's just sort of making a lot of everything go on both ends. Uh, the defense is functioning a lot better when he's out there. The offense is functioning a lot better when he's out there. Um, and a large part of that is just he's a very smart basketball player. Um, the, one of the best attributes to me uh, headed into the draft with Franz was that he was very well in tune with how to use his length and his body. He knew he wasn't the most athletic guy, but he made up for it with um, a lot of great positioning with it. Uh, his length um, and good foot placement in terms of getting around guys and things like that. So he's really uh, transferred that to the NBA as well, where he's able to impact uh, like the defense at the point of attack the other night, forget who it was against, but he totally just picked somebody's pocket because he was in the right position at the right time uh, and used his quick hands and got out in transition and made an easy layup. So things like that. And, how smart and he utilizes his body in those ways uh, is what has really set Franz apart and been, made him successful, uh, I think, for the Magic. And he's doing some things like uh, making a lot of like these simple bounce passes or simple um, out to the perimeter plays. And while they may be overly simplistic, they're the right plays that leads to winning basketball. So I think Franz just really understands the game very well 
And even though it may look a bit simplistic at times, uh, it's actually very high level stuff that he's doing. So uh, I've been really impressed with them so far. Yeah, I, I have too. And, and I'm regretting putting him lower and in, in, in the 20s uh, on my board. But I think the there's an opportunity for us to at least acknowledge some of the guys that we're talking about here who are making really strong impacts early in their career. Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy, Franz Wagner, all high IQ guys with quick processing speed. And I think that those are the younger guys that are going to come in and make earlier impacts. This is why we can't draw too many conclusions from, you know, the first year of, of an NBA career, let alone just the first week, like we're talking about right now, there are guys that are going to come along a little bit later that may end up surpassing them. Right. Like right now, if we're just going off of this week sample, of course, it looks like Franz Wagner is going to be a better pro than Jonathan Kaminga. Kaminga hasn't played yet. He's going to need more time and seasoning, but that doesn't mean that we need to have this revisionist history of looking back. I wish I'd put Wagner. I had him at 26. I should have put him at six. Like let's, let's calm down a little bit and know that there's still time for the rest of these guys without taking away from what we've seen with Wagner. Like he's already proven yeah, He's going to be a legitimate starter or at least high end rotation guy for a long time to come. And that much is clear through the first week of time because he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands in order to make a really positive impact. And there aren't a ton of guys you can say that about. Yeah. And I think um, one thing I've sort of learned over the years of doing this is I try to take like one thing that I've missed on a player and apply that to my next draft to a player. Like what did I miss on, uh, for example, like Isaiah Stewart, I was very low on Isaiah Stewart why was I low on him and how can I play what I was wrong about to the next player in the next draft? So I think with Franz Wagner, it's a case of um, why were so many guys just a little bit higher on my board than him that I liked a little bit more. What about Franz didn't pop to me uh, in the pre-draft process? So I, I think um, Franz is, like you said, very clearly going to be a high-end rotation player for a lot of years. Uh, and a lot of that is just because He's just so smart with uh, at basketball. He, he's a very smart basketball player. Um, and that's always been my philosophy really is bet on extremely high, um, high IQ guys. And, and Franz is certainly that. For sure. For sure. So all of those younger guys are making positive impacts, but the two most predictable that we all pretty much saw coming for having good rookie campaigns right out of the gate are the old heads, the guys that played multiple years in college and are just more seasoned coming into their, their NBA debuts. First off, we got to talk about off night. Davion Mitchell, I mean, he is as good as advertised defensively. I, for one, have been so impressed by how consistent his offense has been in coming into Sacramento. Where are you right now on Mitchell, and, and how long can he keep this up? Because he has been killing guys. Yeah, um, I will preface this by saying, uh, out of this list of rookies we'll be talking about, Duarte and Davion Mitchell are who I've seen the least amount of. There's just a lot of NBA games out there, and I haven't had time to catch every single one of them, unfortunately, as much as I would love to. Um, Davion, though, has, I think, been more impactful than I thought he would be defensively. Uh, and I know that may sound a little weird to some people, um, but if the way I saw it was he's a very, very good guard defender, and I never really doubted that would translate. But my question would be, how much would that be picked on? Because he is a bit smaller in frame. How much of that will be picked on because he's not versatile enough to guard on switches and things like that? So um, as good as he is as a guard defender, my question was sort of how versatile can he be outside of that? Uh and so far, he's just done a really good job of continuing to stay as a guard defender. Um, that his sort of rebuttal to that question was, just don't make me a versatile defender and I'll stick with my guy. Uh, and he's done a really good job at that. He's uh, been picking pockets. Uh, and obviously, we've seen how explosive he is, uh, wow. both at Baylor and now on the Sacramento Kings. So when he picks someone's pocket and he's out in transition, there's really no catching up to him. Um, I think the shooting is something that I didn't really expect from him. 
he had sort of a mixed bag of shooting numbers at Baylor. Um, but the, the latest season was sort of his best shooting. And apparently that's just sort of translated over to the NBA. So um, I may have undervalued sort of what impact the, the recent shooting improvement has been. Yeah, as did I. And, and look, he was great during the preseason and, and summer league. He's four of 18 to start from three. He's, he's not knocking them down right now, but I think we yeah. saw enough through that summer league and, and preseason period where you know that this is an aberration, right? Like he's not going to be a 22% three-point shooter for his career. He may be closer to 30, 33 uh, somewhere in that range, but he's he's certainly not a, a sub thirty guy. I think that that'd be a little bit too far of a critique. And again, this is this is all small sample size stuff right now. Right. But we're looking for areas that are going to be consistent and translate. And one of them is just the simple fact that he can lock down really really good NBA guards. Um, not a surprise to a lot of people that had good scouts on Mitchell heading into the draft. But I think you hit the nail on the head with the versatility, right? And especially in a place like Sacramento, where they already have so many good guards who are young and worth keeping on the floor, you know, what do you end up doing creatively in order to get all three maximized and playing a ton of minutes together? So still a lot of moving pieces there, but he's at least come in and been as advertised, as has Chris Duarte. I know you mentioned him. He's the last rookie that we'll talk about from a really positive standpoint right now. He's leading this class in scoring right now. And he is really, really good from deep. His pull-up game is uh, the same as it was at Oregon, to be frank. Really good. I think that was an aspect that, that got a little bit underrated and wasn't talked about enough throughout that pre-draft process. When you run him off the line, he's going to drill shots and has a little bit of shit to him where he can create late clock. Now, what else have you seen from Duarte in the moments that you've watched? Or, or do you think that this is a sustainable guy who, hey, he's going to come in and and be a 16 to 18 point per game scorer? Um, well, I think a big part of it is opportunity. Um, now that he, uh, having had that incredible first game, um, I, now that he's earned, uh, his name is escaping me, Rick Carlisle's uh, trust. Uh, trust is a big thing for Rick Carlisle. And because Chris Dorte played the way he did, I think he sort of solidified himself in the rotation. So he continue, can continue to get those reps as a rookie uh, and really build on the field and things like that. Um, I was expecting Duarte to sort of have an immediate impact on whatever team he had, but not nearly at this level. This is, uh, he, he's shooting uh, crazy. Um, I think he's at like 42 or 43% right now from three. Um, I'm not sure if that necessarily is sustainable, although I wouldn't be surprised if he ends the year as a 40% shooter um he's looked like not cooked defensively I thought uh he would be somebody that wasn't a bad defender necessarily but somebody that I think at times would be um maybe like the weaker link on the team somebody that um teams would sort of on the perimeter try to get around uh and so far he's really held his own I think he's been a, a plus defender I would say um he's also been like a decent creator uh I think that's something that a lot of people saw from him a little bit, um, but again, didn't necessarily expect at this level, especially this early on. Um, he's been somebody that's been at times sort of like a, maybe like a secondary playmaker for them. Um, somebody that's able to take advantage of shifts that have already been created uh, by, by like a Malcolm Brogdon. So he's been able to sort of exploit those shifts and uh, find the open guys and things like that. So I've been really impressed by Duarte. I'm not necessarily sure this level of play is sustainable, uh, but again, he's seasoned. He's um, we all made the Duarte old jokes uh, in the pre-draft process, but uh, looks like he's he's an NBA veteran and he knows how to play. So, um, you know, the the Pacers don't have a glut of wings anymore either. Uh, we know T.J. Warren is out with his uh, injury and also. Um, fill us uh Dougie McBucket so um Duarte has a role to fill and he's filling it really well so I'm excited to see what he does moving forward well you know friend of mine Matt Penny who shout out Penny I mean hardest working guy in in sports right now he put something out there the other day talking about the the long-term dichotomy between what the Spurs did at 13 with Josh Primo taking the youngest guy in the draft and what the Pacers did a pick later at 14 moving up and getting Duarte 
And, and that is such a strong dichotomy of instant impact versus long-term. Duarte looks great right off the bat. How do we know if San Antonio ever is going to feel regret over taking Primo or not taking Duarte? Or you know, when would that point arrive? That's such a long-term question that we have to ask ourselves, but a super fascinating one that I hadn't really considered before. The polarities on the youngest guy and the oldest guy in the draft being taken right next to each other at the later part of that lottery. So yeah, um, I didn't even realize that till you brought that up right now. <laughs> yeah. And Duarte has been great. Not going to take anything away from him. You always wonder how much more there is to his game, right? This is a, a phenomenally deep class at the top here in 2021. There's already so many guys that we all talked about. We really liked, but we had them in the late teens on our board. Uh, Duarte was kind of that guy for me really, really liked him had him in the late teens. I don't think I saw him coming in being a guy that's averaging 18 a game through the first five of his career, but said, yeah, he's going to be able to score 10 to 15 a night and be a really good shooter off the bench for somebody and has a little bit more to his self-creation game than people think. The question is, does he have much more to really reach where a lot of these other guys that you also really like have higher long-term ceilings and can grow into a greater role? Um, I just, uh, it's a fascinating thing to, to be thinking about long-term. So we've talked a lot about the guys that we like, the guys that have done a really good job earning and capitalizing on early minutes in their career. One guy who's maybe disappointed a little bit is Jalen Suggs. And, and part of the reason he's disappointed is because I had incredibly high expectations for him. He was number three on my pre-draft board, major Suggs fan, love his competitiveness, thought that if you put him in the spread pick and roll, he was going to be able to figure things out offensively. And he's already a really good on-ball defender at that point guard spot. The worry anybody that was going into Orlando was going to face is one, the floor spacing in the situation there because there isn't a ton of offensive talent. And two, they have so many young guards already. How do you balance the development of all of those guys? And I'm curious where you weigh in on either of those two topics and specifically how they might relate to Suggs and his struggles out of the gate. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a longtime Cole Anthony fan. Um, and I put out a tweet the other day where it's like, if Orlando had a player that could pass like Jalen Suggs, but could handle like Cole Anthony, they would have the ideal point guard for the, for the Orlando magic. And I think that's a big part of Jalen Suggs early on struggles is is the handle um and that's something that I think he'll be eventually be able to overcome because he's a really great passer um he is extremely athletic I had him fourth on my board I think most people had Jalen Suggs top five like I would say 95 percent of people or more had Jalen Suggs as a top five prospect again it's a very small sample size but early on the struggle to me seems to be a lot uh, to do with his handle. Um, there's, I've watched a lot of Orlando Magic games so far, and they're doing a lot of offenses where he's taking one dribble and handing it off to Cole Anthony because he's just not necessarily able to create for himself. Uh, and I think that's something that, again, will come with time because he is extremely athletic. At some point, he's just going to be able to say, okay, I have an advantage here on a first step. I can just take the ball and take it to the rim because I'm faster than you. Um, Cole Anthony at this point in time is just a more seasoned NBA player. He's been in the league for a year longer. He's just a better ball handler. Um, but Jalen Suggs, you see the passing, the connectivity with him. Um, he's able to, like Franz Wagner, make some of the offense just go because he's great at finding the open guy. Uh, making swing passes on the perimeter, those three or four passes around the perimeter, like the 2013 Spurs used to do. Uh, Jalen Suggs would have been great on that team. Um, but yeah, I think the big reason for him so far early on is, is just the handle. Um, that seems to be what's causing a lot of these early on uh, problems and issues for him offensively. Yeah, we had similar concerns heading into the draft about his ball handling, something that he needed to tighten up. I don't know how you feel about this, but in comparison to all of the other shortcomings that a player can have coming in, I think that's a relatively easy fix, or at least one that I can identify a lot of guys that have been able to go through the process and improve their handle. Like I look at a guy like Jalen Brown, and how raw he was from a ball handling perspective and where he's at right now. It, it's night and day 
And it really makes a difference for the type of offensive player that he was. So I just, I wasn't overly worried about that detracting from Suggs in the long term. It, granted, I, I think you're probably right. It's what's holding him back from having a lot of impact right now. But I just want to make sure that he continues to get those reps in Orlando, right? That they work with him through it and they don't just move him into a pure facilitator, a pure off ball. Hey, let's, you know, like you said, one dribble, hand it off to Cole Anthony, get the ball to RJ Hampton and let him go, or, you know, have those Terrence Ross takeover moments where Suggs is just kind of standing there watching Ross do his thing at the elbows. Cause that's what Terrence Ross does. So you know, for, for the Orlando Magic, having that long-term perspective, I think that their organization is in a position to continue to be patient. Now let's be patient ourselves as, you know, bystanders and people that are watching Suggs continue to, to get better game after game. Yeah, and I think um, my, my one concern with his development in terms of the ball handling is the fact that they – they don't necessarily have a lot of ball handlers there. I would say that are like high level ball handlers that can take the pressure off of Suggs. Uh, my concern is that they, they don't play him through it and they try to just give it to Cole Anthony. He's the de facto and they sort of give up on Suggs and say, you're just not a ball handler. Like you were saying and play him as an off guard. When I think in reality, the idealized version of Suggs is as a point guard um and but to be able to get to that idealized version the handle needs to develop uh so if he's able to play through it um and i think it'll take a a good portion of the season and maybe not even in one season it may be a multi-year thing um but even still he's gonna be i think a fine player regardless if the handle never comes around he's a fantastic complimentary guard who's able to defend on the other end as a bigger guard and uses athleticism to get to the to the rim at the very least I think and as a connective passer so um, there's a severe limitation it gives to Suggs but I think there's a certain threshold that he can't fall under because of the ancillary skill that he possesses. Stone you and I could talk about drafting and philosophy and evaluation and, and this 2021 class all day long like I know both of us are just can't wait to take a victory lap about Jeremiah Robinson Earl, but at at (laughs) the end of the day, at the end of the day here, I think it's time to shift back to that 2020 class a little bit because last year, their rookie campaign was disjointed, no training camp, COVID shortened season, a lot of different roles where guys are bouncing in and out of the lineup and they never went through a quote unquote normal off season. This is our first time in seeing a bunch of them, but they have a leg up on the current rookies because they have those, you know, 60 games or whatever it ended up being under their belt. Are there a couple guys that you are either expecting to take a big leap or that have already perhaps taken it and, and, you know, impressed so far? Um, going back to the Orlando magic, it's uh, it's been Cole Anthony for me. Yeah. Um, I've been waiting for him to sort of have these, this quote unquote, breakout year and it might not even be at this level for the entirety of the season like I don't think we're expecting him to have 25 point 15 rebound games uh for every game of the season but he's looked um every bit of sort of their lead scorer so far um we saw I think like in the very first game we played for UNC what sort of shooting impact he can have um where he's able to really just catch fire and be that sort of microwave score in the NBA uh, and he's shown a bit of that so far in spurs throughout the Orlando Magic games. There's been a couple times where he just goes on like a single six to eight point run by himself and creates his own shots. Um, and, you know, if he's able to do that more and more consistently, I think he has the real opportunity to sort of be this uh, offensive engine for the Orlando Magic where most of the offense runs through. So. I've been really impressed by him. Again, the rebounding has been something too since high school, really, that has always popped with him. Uh, it's something that I think for a lot of guards or a lot of evaluators, at least, it's not necessarily something they look at or factor in too much. But with Anthony, he's like actually a very aggressive rebounder, and he uses that uh, and propels himself in transition where he he uses his athleticism to get in front of everybody. So. Uh, in Anthony's case, I feel like the rebounding is actually a, um, a real asset to his game. So 
I've been really liking what I've seen so far from him. I think the next step in his evolution is as a passer. Um, I would like to see him uh, be more accurate as a passer off of movement. Um, I feel like a lot of sort of his driving kicks are, uh, you know, a little too far out where a guy has to get in and put one dribble in to, to get himself open. So if he can be a bit more accurate of a passer, uh, I, I feel like that's sort of the next evolution and solidifying Anthony as sort of the number one guy in Orlando for, for now. Yeah, they're going to be at the bottom of pretty much every team, every guy's league pass rankings, right? No one's trying to tune in and watch a ton of Orlando Magic basketball. I feel like I'm the only guy that's watched Orlando Magic games <laughs> besides an Orlando Magic fan. <laughs> I caught I caught a little bit of their their game against, uh, I, I think it was Charlotte. Uh, just got a, a few possessions here and there. Like he's averaging 17, seven and a half, and six through the first five games. He's been really, really good. I'm I'm impressed with with Cole Anthony right now. Now again, I love Suggs. I really like Anthony, and I liked him a lot through last year's pre-draft process. I also loved R.J. Hampton and think that there's so much untapped potential for a guy like him. I don't know how the Magic are going to maximize all three, and and I I think it's pretty much inevitable that one of them falls short of reaching their ceiling, and and that worries me a little bit because I I want all three guys to be able to succeed and pop. Uh, but it looks like Anthony has made the most progression from where we thought he was the last time we saw him play to where he's looked over the last month. Uh, give me another guy, Stone. Who else has, has caught your eye out of this, this young class? Um, for me, the other guy has been Desmond Bain. Um, I was uh, much like Cole Anthony, maybe too high on both of them. Uh, I was very high on Desmond Bain. Um, and I'm not sure I necessarily expect this level of Desmond Bain for the entirety of the season. Uh, maybe some point in the future he can get there, but I don't think he's going to be this near 20 point per game score for, for the entirety of this year, um, especially once Dylan Brooks comes back. And that's sort of been a factor, I think, in what's helping him excel is that he has this role that he doesn't have to fight for. He knows that, uh, you know, he is the... Um, the guy that the secondary guy to draw right now uh, on the perimeter so um, he's really impressed me though uh, we all knew that Desmond Bain was a fantastic shooter uh, what's really impressed me more so has been his level of playmaking has progressed a bit um, I feel like he's been asked to carry a little bit more playmaking duty now uh, this this season and he's really excelled in it so um, I've been excited to see that sort of development from him. Uh, I think he's uh, a fantastic player. He's also extremely um, <laughs> in shape, I would say. Uh, he's got probably uh, in the top five of biggest biceps in the league. So uh, <laughs> he, he's utilizing it too to finish. So I've been really excited to see how he's attacking the rim too. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really happy on what he's been doing so far and I'm excited wow. to see sort of his development in the future because he's another guy who we think I, I think that most of us had questions as to how high his ceiling was because he was an older prospect yeah. uh, and this may be the highest it gets for some people but I think uh, there, there's a little bit more un to untap there with him at the very least let's try to set the negative wingspan for shooters thing to bed. Tyler Hero, Desmond Bain, like they're impactful regardless. It doesn't matter if they don't have massive reach to them. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk about one of the guys that I really like in this class who does have really, really long go-go gadget arms. We should start calling him Doc Ock, right? Like this is Devin Vassell, who I'm talking about, the San Antonio Spurs, because he is a master pickpocketer and his length is appalling every time you watch him play it to me it's the one thing that stands out most just physically you look at him in comparison to everybody else on the court his arms are so so long he's made another stride this year as a pull-up jump shooter and there's positives and negatives to that which is why I'm, I'm watching what happens over the entirety of the season and not just the start to things here he is going to be really really good if he can become a three-level scorer because he's such a good defender on ball, off ball, he's versatile, he's long, he's athletic. He does it all in that sense. But offensively, if that pull-up jumper is consistent, he's got something to him offensively. Now, the downside is I don't know if he'll ever be a three-level scorer because he doesn't attack the rim. He's always taking jump shots, and he doesn't have that quickness 
or that second step quickness really to get by somebody. His first step is long and wide enough that he's able to gain separation, but he doesn't accelerate through it. He doesn't get to the free throw line a ton. He doesn't finish at the rim a lot. He's just turning himself into a jump shooter. And if you make a ton of them consistently, that's great. But he's not Jason Tatum, right? He's never going to be this isolation scorer that's able to shake guys one-on-one or carry a 20-point-per-game load. So if he's not attacking the basket and getting to the rim frequently in the half court, I do have a little bit of worry about what his offensive role is going to be long-term. So I'm intrigued by Vassell because he was a top-five guy on my board in 2020, and he's popped even more in that pull-up jump shot area that gives me so much hope for what he could be, but it has to pair with attacking the basket and finishing there more effectively in order for me to feel really, really comfortable with him. So I'm a little bit on the fence from Vassell. Have you, have you watched any Spurs early on in the year? Um, I watched his, I watched the first game of Vassell um, and that probably less left a, a very positive taste in my mouth because I was really impressed with his handle uh, and sort of how he was, the self-creation has developed. Uh, he's been able to have a little more shake to him in the mid-range, uh, create for himself in that way. So I feel like he has that part of his game down. All he needs to do now really is, like you said, uh, develop that that first or second step to to really explode towards the basket because he's so long. And if he can use that uh, wingspan to get to the rim quicker, get the ball to the rim quicker as using his um his wingspan as a, a, a vessel, vessels, vessel uh, <laughs> to the rim. Um, it can help him get there quicker and help him as a finisher. So uh, I really like what I saw from the first game from him. But again, the, the lack of rim pressure is really what's going to uh, hold him back or make or break him, I guess you could say. Oh, that vassal, vassal. Oh, my goodness. Uh, as the, who was it? Heath Ledger version of the Joker said, and I thought my <laughs> jokes were bad. Oh goodness! Oh yeah, just um, wait till you listen to Upside Swings. It's it's all bad things <laughs> <jokes> there. <laughs> oh man! Well, we could talk about the positive side of things, the optimism we have for those 2020 guys. I think there are also a few who might have had concerns their rookie season and haven't done enough early on in year two to dissuade us from really changing our minds on them. Uh, is there somebody that stands out to you that's just still not performing up to where you thought they'd be or should be? Um. I feel like I'm speaking for a lot of people here when I say Killian Hayes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's too early, I think, to label anybody a bust um, barely into their second year. I feel like that's, for really anybody, a bit unfair. Um, but I feel like it's safe to say that he may not live to a lot of people's, live up to a lot of people's expectations. Um, he's just been, I want to be as nice as possible, but He's been very, very rough to start uh, his NBA career. It, it's not been good. Um, there's a, a lot of self-creation issues. There's a lot of shooting issues. Um, I think the defense has been sort of the one thing that's been uh, a, more of a positive with him, uh, which obviously in Detroit they could use um, on the perimeter. So, uh, but Maybe with Cade, I'm hoping that that eases a bit of the playmaking pressure off of him. Uh, And that's kind of unfortunate for me to say, because I thought that was sort of Killian's best asset was that he was this really high level um, passer and uh, paired that with with some uh, really high level playmaking. So uh, to be able to say that, you know, maybe Cade can take away some of that from him is, is sort of unfortunate. Uh, but at the same time, maybe it's what Killian needs to be able to develop in that way. Maybe he um, shouldn't be carrying such such a load to begin with um, and be even be eased into it even more. So um, it could be a good thing for him. And maybe Killian's just not the player we thought he was. Maybe he's more of a 3 and D type guy, uh, more of an off-ball player. So uh, I'm really interested to see how Detroit plays it with him because he he could go in a lot more directions than I think a lot of people initially thought. Yeah. Well, the moral of the story, never underestimate the importance of a good first step. That's <laughs> one thing I'm already learning from, from my evaluation on Gillian Hayes. But Stone, loved having you on here. Thank you for joining us tonight, talking about all these rookies, some of these second-year guys, and just breaking down a lot of what you're seeing. 
let the people know where can they find your work? What do you have upcoming? Yeah, um, so pretty much anything I work on will be at report underscore court on Twitter. Um, anything I, I work on will be posted there. Uh, I do I do a podcast, a, a scouting breakdown podcast called Upside Swings uh, with a couple of great co-hosts, um, which you can check out on pretty much any podcast platform. We just wrapped up our uh, sort of NBL week. We had uh, Kane Purnell and, and Lockie Everett there to discuss the NBL like we were talking with Josh Giddy. So uh, sort of the future of the NBL and, and what we can learn as evaluators in terms of how it translates to the NBA, but also uh, what upcoming prospects will be playing there. So if you're into that sort of thing and you really like uh, scouting stuff, upside swings hopefully will fulfill those needs. Um, and as far as upcoming work, I'm working actually on a couple of written pieces, which I haven't done in uh, over a year. So I'm excited to start writing again. So uh, you can find that on the Rise Network, which is where Upside Swings is presented by, and then I'll also be posting on Roll Call Sports. Wow. A lot of great things in the works there. I can't wait to read again because it's been a while for me. Always love the stuff <laughs> that you put out. And more than anything, I think you and I can both have a, an honest conversation about the stuff and say, yeah, this is where we messed up. And I think it's very rare to find somebody to be able to just have that, uh, that perspective. So I appreciate you for doing that. Appreciate you for taking the time to educate us and, and give us some perspective on here. And uh, we'd love to have you back sometime soon. So Stone, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you all next time on the Box and One podcast. Yeah.